0: From the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin, welcome to The Surgery Set. I'm Jonathan Kohler, an assistant professor in pediatric surgery here in Madison, home of the Badgers. This is a podcast all about surgery and the individuals who are at the cutting edge of it, and we're glad you're here. Welcome to The Surgery Set. If you enjoy our program, please rate the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Podbean, Stitcher, Overcast, or wherever you downloaded this podcast. It really helps us grow. One of my favorite things about medicine is that it often becomes clear that everything we thought we knew is wrong. And that's the theme of the talk that today's guest gave when he presented Grand Rounds here in Madison. Dr. Jason Hall is the chief of colon and rectal surgery at Boston University School of Medicine. Dr. Hall is also the director of the Dempsey Center for Digestive Disorders at Boston Medical Center. He spent much of his career in Boston, graduating from Harvard Medical School and doing residency at Massachusetts General Hospital his grand round focused on diverticulitis. It was an amazing talk. Turns out a lot of what we thought we knew and took for granted about this extremely common digestive disorder isn't exactly accurate. We have a link to his talk on the Surgery Set webpage, surgery.wisk.edu slash podcast. I hope you enjoy our discussion. So Dr. Hall, welcome to the Surgery Set. Thanks so much for joining us here in uh, snowy Madison. Thank you
1: for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: You gave a great talk on uh, diverticulitis, which is one of the most common diagnoses in general surgery. You actually are a colorectal surgeon, though, so you sort of specialize in that area.
1: Yeah, I see. I'd say about 20 to 30 percent of my practice is in diverticular disease, and I do a lot of other things, like inflammatory bowel disease
0: and cancer, but diverticulitis is very, very common. One of the things that I never see in my pediatric (laughs) surgical practice is diverticulitis. My memory of it from residency, which is not that long ago, you know, it was a disease that we tended to get very involved aggressively with surgically. So a lot of these patients ended up having operations, they ended up having colostomies. And I think the big takeaway I took from your talk is, even though this is a common diagnosis, even though this is something that has been around forever, Maybe the way that we always have treated in the past is is not quite right.
1: Right. Well, I mean, as you know, I think we're seeing that with a lot of uh, diseases, a lot of surgical diagnoses, is that the we've gone into this era of evidence-based medicine, and so a lot of the things that we've been doing for decades, centuries, have to be questioned. We have to sort of have some real good evidence for sort of guiding us in what we do. And so basically what you saw with my talk was, what do we do for diverticulitis and what's the evidence to support it? I think you saw that there's a number of things where there's some questions about what the best thing to do is. I
0: mean, it wasn't that long ago. A friend of mine actually had a relative with diverticulitis. They asked me, well, you know, what what should we do for it? And I said, well, you know, if the first incidence just stop eating popcorn and nuts, um, and then if it if it comes back a second time, then you're probably going to get an operation. It turns out all of that is wrong. Um, so I have to make a phone call after this. Uh, <laughs> apologize. But those are some of the, the classic things we've always been taught about diverticulitis. And you have good data to say that that's not quite right.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the only thing we know is that exercising, eating a healthy diet with plenty of fruits and vegetables is associated with less risk of getting diverticular disease. And I think a lot of these claims about, well, if you just avoid nuts, if you just avoid tomatoes, aren't necessarily supported by a lot of evidence. Now, that's different than if uh, if a patient notices that every time they eat arugula, they get an attack of diverticulitis, then I would probably say, well, don't eat the arugula. <laughs> I mean, that just makes <laughs> right. sense, yeah. right? Yeah. The hurts don't do it. But yeah. I think making broad prescriptions for a giant population of people with a disease probably doesn't make a lot of sense. We probably should just focus on what we do know.
0: I mean, a lot of people who have diverticular disease, it kind of presents as just like some pain that goes away on its own, or maybe they, you know, they, they present to the emergency department, yeah. they don't have a huge abscess, they don't have peritonitis, they're not like, they don't need to go to the ICU. Right. Those patients are really different than different. patients with stool in the abdomen.
1: It's, it's a completely different disease, yeah. right? So in the latter example, that patient's life is threatened. They're going to die, right, if you don't do something. And so that's that's really where like the role of surgery is pretty clear, right? Like there's no controversy about like if that if the patient is doing really poorly, surgery is definitely the way to go. I think where we have more controversy is these less acute presentations where the patient's having pain, but they can sort of do their their activities of daily living, they can still work, but they're just constantly bothered by this persistent discomfort. And the question is, uh, you know, will a, a somewhat risky operation help them? And most of the time it does, according to the evidence.
0: There's sort of not a ton of crossover, right? right. It's not like uncomplicated diverticulitis where you've got some pain left unchecked becomes complicated diverticulitis. It doesn't usually go It right. right. doesn't direction. cross over. Yeah. No,
1: it doesn't usually go in that direction. We do see it the other way, right? So mm. somebody with an abscess and they got better and now they have this persistent kind of pain in the left lower quadrant or you know they a fistula and they're still having some symptoms in their bladder related to the fistula so we, we do see chronic symptoms when complicated disease becomes you know something that we can manage as an outpatient but uh, uncomplicated disease is a different entity most of the times we can just manage that with antibiotics and the question is how many times do you want to do that
0: now there's some question about even like the antibiotic regimen.
1: Right, right. right. That data is the most surprising to people and I still have some questions about it because people do get better. You can visibly observe them get better on antibiotics. But I think what these two papers show, the two randomized trials, is maybe they just visibly get better on their own without antibiotics, but just resting the bowel, right? The experiment had never been done before.
0: I do this podcast every two weeks and And I find more and more when I have these discussions with people who are sort of like leaders at the forefront of their fields, like, it reminds me, I'm a theater major Uh um, from a long time ago, Uh of this great quote from um, this play by uh, Tom Stoppard called Arcadia, Uh where uh, a guy who's like a chaos mathematician says, uh, you know, it's the most exciting possible time to be alive when everything you think you know is wrong (laughs) you know i mean and i think that that's that is so much where we are in medicine right now is it just feels like we're taking all of these things that we just accepted as fact like you never even questioned like this if the x then y like it was very easy and now suddenly we're sort of exploding all of these like Common diagnoses and saying, you know what, none of this might be right. How do you approach that in your the way you talk to patients, the way you think about your own research? That every assumption has to be questioned.
1: Well, it's not just every assumption; it's even the evidence for (laughs) the assumption. Right. You know what I mean? Because like a lot of the data I presented today is retrospective, observational, non-randomized work. Right. Right. And it's rife with selection bias. Like we don't know why people were chosen from one thing versus the other. It's helpful. Like it's really exciting actually to have randomized trials to talk about now, because now we can say, well, at least these groups were like somewhat comparable. Right. But, um Even the evidence that we have, what we used to use as evidence may not be so good. Right. Yeah. It may not be as good as we think it is.
0: And you sort of made the point that like in diverticulitis, you can find a study that will right. tell you to do that any approach right. is, good, right. is the right one. Right. Yeah,
1: And so in that sense, it makes an office visit for somebody with diverticulitis really difficult. Right. Because there's a lot of stuff to discuss. There's a lot of different options there's many decision trees that they could go down. And so it's really an individualized disease, right? It's not it's not like rectal cancer where if you have, you know, stage 3A disease like we're going to you know give you chemo radiation and then wait 6 weeks like a and a fixed operate. protocol.
0: Yeah. No,
1: it's it's all changing. Even that's true in the management of rectal cancer, right? So now we we're waiting on the the results of the prospect trial, right? To see if Chemotherapy alone right is is equivalent to chemotherapy and radiation, so we 're questioning all of these things that we used to do,
0: yeah, how does that change the way you talk to patients? i mean it sort of I think goes that issue of the patriarchal approach to sure. surgery where people would come to us and we would say, "You have x, we will do y right. now it 's like you have x, we can do y z, y prime z prime right yeah, right it's interesting
1: because I really now have to think of myself as more of an educator Mm. than a physician, right? Like I I have the physician side over here, but I also have to know how to educate people who may not have the background knowledge that I have about a certain subject, right? Because that's what we need for the patient to be able to make an informed decision. Mm -hmm. And it's funny, when I see patients with medical students... I actually don't even talk to the medical students about diagnoses anymore, right? They make a presentation to me and then I say, well, let's go see the patient together and then I will just get a piece of paper and draw out the whole thing and all the options. And that educates the medical student. It also educates the patient yeah. at the same time, right? right? Right. But the level of detail that you need to get into for something like diverticulitis, which used to be like a five-minute office visit, right, is you know now sometimes forty, forty-five minutes,
0: right?
1: And patients are options.
0: selecting different options, options right? Because right. like, they now right. they have to right. they have to
1: pick, right? And you got to you got to document document what was discussed, and yeah. What you're going to do, yeah. and so it's. It's an exciting time, but it's also an intellectually time-consuming time to to be
0: in medicine, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, pediatric surgery, we're sort of doing the same thing with appendicitis, you know? It used to be like, you have appendicitis, we're going to take out your appendix. And now it's like, you know, there's like different kinds of appendicitis, and it's maybe you're going to just get antibiotics or, you know, if it's perforated, right. there's different pathways and yeah. d- do we really need two weeks of IV antibiotics or could we get by with a week of oral antibiotics right. or could we get by with three days of oral antibiotics? And I've had patients sort of look at me and say like, come on, man, this is appendicitis, right. you know? Like,
1: Well, so I've often said, you know, when you go to the, these national meetings where we have just all these, like, retrospective – like, they're muscling the database, you know, like, yeah. to, like to get an answer. I've also often said we'd do much better by just saying, listen, we're just going to – we're only going to as- accept abstracts for randomized questions, right? Right. To answer a specific problem, right, and force people to get together and say, hey, listen, we're going to try to figure out whether three versus five days – in the management of this kind of appendicitis is better, you know, like which one, which approach should we take? Right. Cause then we would have some evidence. Right. Um, Rather the problem. Than trying to sort of yeah,
0: construct it from right, a from, retrospective database. Yeah, where right, there's a yeah. lot
1: of selection bias and <sighs> where, you know, I might see the patient and like, say, oh, they look really bad. I'm like, let's give them 10 days. And then you see them, and you're like, what are you talking about? You don't see pediatric patients. They only need three, right? Yeah. Like that's a, that's one of the bigger struggles is we need to w- change the way we get evidence.
0: How do you work within a group? So you're the, the chief yeah. at, of colon rectal yeah. surgery. How do you work with a bunch of surgeons who, you know, all have their own ideas about their own personal experience and their own interpretation of the data. Collaboration is key. Mm -hmm. Obviously.
1: I also think collecting your own data, right? Your own data is important and every surgeon being aware of their own data is important. And then comparing your results is also one data uh, like, very important and yeah. so that gets tricky because people are um, understandably um it's personal right like this is this is how i performed this is how i did but that's also the only way to get better right
0: right so uh, like you will track your own leak rates that's and right compare that, it to that's your that's right that's right yeah,
1: yeah. well if uh, we do that in our section we keep track of every single case we do we hmm. follow the patient for 90 days we know everybody that's leaked we know everybody that's had a wound infection all of that is adjudicated by somebody independent so we know all of those things and we start by really paying attention to what we're doing like who's like who's who has a low leak rate right we're starting to be able to sort of adopt common practices, right? Because that's the other thing that works pretty well in groups is if people start to do things consistently, yeah. then it washes out some of that variability and you can sort of get get better
0: outcomes, yeah. I think. And it lets you measure it, sure, right? Measure like if everybody yeah, exactly. does it the same exactly. way, then you sort of have like a right. controlled yeah. baseline that you can then,
1: yeah. you
0: know, make moves and sort of watch effects and know what's actually happening, right?
1: One of the first things yeah. we did was like, standardize the kits right the or kits right right (laughs) everybody had like some different thing they were using how about we just use all the same kit
0: everybody makes (laughs) a minor adaptation (laughs) right right? right. like and everything gets easier yeah these
1: things don't happen overnight because of way the way change works and the way people change um you can never just impose these you know like impose a change overnight it really takes time uh it really takes time to an openness to kind of consider that hey listen you know this approach might be better or you know this tool might be better or this strategy might be might be better
0: yeah while remembering that like every decision that you're making now will probably turn out to be completely wrong 50 right. years from now, right? <laughs> right. Everybody, like, if we do our jobs right, people will look back right. on us as barbarians, right? right? What, what were, were they doing? What were they doing? <laughs> but we're making progress right, right. incrementally right. and thoughtfully. Right. So. Right. 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 Well, thank you so much for joining us. Right. Thanks for making the trip out here and for taking the time to to speak with us today. Yeah,
1: no, I really uh, enjoyed giving the talk and I enjoyed the questions. I'm looking forward to meeting with
0: folks uh, today. Wonderful. Thank you so much. All right, man. Join us next time on The Surgery Set when I speak with Dr. Tatiana Hoyos-Gomez. Dr. Hoyos-Gomez is a chief resident in general surgery here at UW. We discuss the need to break cultural barriers in order to provide quality health care. Tune in, and thank you for listening. The Surgery Set is a production of the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by Chelsea Johnson and me, Jonathan Kohler. It was recorded by Chris Hansen and edited by Elizabeth DiNovella. Our theme song is On Wisconsin, arranged and produced by Jamie Schmidt. I encourage you to visit us at surgery.wisc.edu, where you can find links to Grand Rounds, free CME credits, and more. You can also check out the UW School of Medicine and Public Health video library for a wide range of medical education resources at videos.med.wisc.edu. In addition, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. And of course, you can follow us on social media. You can like our Facebook page and also find us on Twitter at Whisk Surgery, and I'm at J.E. Kohler, K-O-H-L-E-R. Please feel free to let us know how we're doing, rate and review us on your podcast app, and don't hesitate to let us know of any topics you'd like us to cover. Thanks, and we hope you check back soon. i the Wisconsin.